Hello and welcome to the Mallow Street podcast. Today I have Laurie Edmonds with me. Laurie is a board member at various organisations and uh, a veteran of the pension space, it's fair to say, and he will tell you more about this in a minute. Laurie, you've got a, a long and distinguished career in the pensions, charitable and educational space, having been on the boards of the Regulator, Nest, the Money Advice Service, the DC scheme of Trinity Mirror and more. Um, and you are still active in that space. You're on the board of Now Pensions, you're a member of the Zurich IGC, and uh, also uh, as an advisor for Covenant Specialist Lincoln. Can you take us back to where this all started and how you got where you are now? Well, thanks, Sandra. That's a very long time ago, 1964 to be precise, when I was leaving Peckham Rise Station, because I'm a South London boy, and I decided I'd had enough of school, made a mess of my O-levels, had three O-levels, English, English Literature and Art, which didn't require any work, and I decided I needed a job. So I popped into Brook Street Bureau, and I said, uh, I want a job. And they said, what do you want to do? Well, I've got no manual dexterity, so I couldn't do building or whatever. Um, I'd been working in a, in a co-op, doing uh, Saturday boy work, and I didn't want to do shelf stacking for the rest of my life. So they said, well, it'll have to be office work then. I said, well, all right then. And uh, they said, well, how many GCs have you got? And I said, three. And they said, well, it'll have to be insurance. You won't get into banking. So that's How old were you then? 16? 16. 16. And, uh, and then I went for a work for a little company called Crusader Insurance on what was then 52 Lime Street, which then only had five floors, not the scalpel, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, where I found myself working for a wonderful woman called Miss Liddy, who was in charge of filing and the typing pool. And after about three months, she said to me, you're not stupid, are you, Miss Rippins? I said, sorry, what do you mean? And she said, well... <laughs> Um, you put the files in the right order. Now, which was not all that common amongst those of us in the filing department. And uh, she said, you're going to do the insurance exams. And I said, oh, no, I've not come here to work in insurance. I just want some money. And she said, the 1964 equivalent of it wasn't a question. So they sent me off to East London College, and I did an ONC in business studies. And I got gripped by it. I got gripped by it. I, Whereas at school I'd been a poor student, um, teachers weren't very good, South London Comprehensive, it was the one Harriet Harman refused to send her son to, and school died of shame as a result. Um, uh, whereas the lecturers at East London College, uh, I used to sit in a junior school desk, I'm six foot two, um, uh, but the lecturers just captured my imagination, and that's what it's all about. Insurance in proved more gripping than literature. <laughs> well, no, I enjoyed the English literature. The, the reason I got two English exams was because I had a brilliant English teacher. He was the exception to the rule. Um, there's no way, absolutely no way at all, I'd be saying here today talking to you in this rather fat-headed sort of way if it hadn't been for him. He, he, he did absolutely get my imagination. I knew oh, a dozen Shakespeare plays back to front. I've not got O-level maths to this day. But, um, but, but I could give you passages of Twelfth Night verbatim. Anyway, so that, that's how I got started. And from then, I really had a series of one massive lucky breaks all the way through. Uh, people say you make your own luck. Obviously, you do to a very large degree. But I believe there's a bell-shaped curve of most things. And, and if you look back through my, my career now, and it's too long for the, av too, too long for the average to change, uh, on average, I've been right at the extreme end of luckiness. <laughs> Mainly that's been because of the people I've been working with, and in particular, it's the people I've been working for, a series of great bosses. I'm still in touch with a lot of them. I mean, people like Otto Torreson at Nest now, who worked for Otto, mm -hmm. his predecessor at Aegon, David Henderson, um, Kevin McBrien, who was the chief exec of National Provident, Going back to the 1980s, when, believe it or not, I wasn't doing pensions, I was doing private medical insurance. I worked for Cigna, set up their medical insurance business um, of local Ernie Auerbach. I've seen, I'm seeing Ernie next week in New York. We're going to see La Traviata together at the Met. Oh. I was out yesterday with Kevin. We're having flying lessons down at Red Hill. 
and uh, I see Otto quite regularly because I'm on the Fair Finance Board with uh, James Daly. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it, it, and they're just wonderful people that, that gave me every chance. So, so would you say it's important to have people that help you in your career? I think it's important to have people that help you, uh, crucially, but I think the way you get that is by helping them. I've, it's almost the answer to one of, your, one of the things I'm mm. going to ask me later, but, uh, but, but I think you get on by doing things, mm -hmm. and I think by and large, if somebody asks you to do something, the right answer is yes. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and if you say you'll do something and you then do it, you get asked to do more things and, and the door's open. Mm -hmm. It's really quite a straightforward process. <laughs> it sounds very easy when you put it like this, but surely it can't have been all that easy. <laughs> well, actually, it feels like it has been. I pinch myself. I really do. Most days, I think, how on earth have I got here, you know? <laughs> and uh, and by, by doing little things, one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. And and what's what's been driving you through all this time? Well, um, you've, you know, I, I've, my father was, was, was quite a bright man, obviously, mm. but he was essentially lazy. And the result of that was that he was always trying to do something really clever and go for the main chance and not do a lot of work and make a lot of money. Um, we had great ups and downs as, as, as a result of that, mostly downs, but we spent the la most of my childhood, we were worried about whether or not we were going to be able to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons I now work for an insurance company, because I never wanted to wonder whether or not we were going to be able to buy Sunday dinner. And I just, as long as I knew there was a regular wage coming in, then I could live within it. So that sort of drove me, and then we started, uh, my wife and I, we weren't married then, but this was the 1960s, we started a family rather earlier and unintentionally than we intended to, five children, uh, from that moment economic necessities drove what I did. Right. Quite straightforward. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but surely there must have been something also that's kept you in that space, rather uh, than anything else? Well, yeah, the need to feed all these kids is pretty, uh, it's, it's quite a driver. I, I uh, yes, I know uh, about it. It does, does, does get you out of bed in the morning. And, uh, but then, I, I think, the same, I come back to where I was a minute ago, um, working with a series of great people, being given the chance to make a difference, which, you know, is, is something, it feels such a privilege. So few people get the chance to actually try to make a difference. But mm. doing things, I mean, can you imagine what it was like to be asked to be one of the founder trustees of Nest? Yeah. Eh? yeah. I mean, this is just, well, goosebumps. Mm. You know, it's just phen phenomenal. The, and, and that sort of drive, you know, keep, keeps you going. I mean, it's like being asked to go on the Nail Pensions Board. You know, the, um, I've known Joe Seegers since we used to argue with each other when she was the uh, pensions officer at TUC yes, yeah. and I was chairing the pensions committee for the ABI. These are not two immediately reconcilable uh, mm -hmm. things, but, but, you know, but uh, uh, one of the big attractions for going on to the NAIL board is the fact, although I'm working for the business side, Joe is chairing the trustees, and we will carry on arguing about stuff like we have argued about stuff for the last 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. But we get on extremely well. We, we, we go out uh, quite a lot as a foursome uh, with um, my wife and her husband. We, we, she likes dance, I like, I like ballet, she likes modern dance. So we go and see. Oh, lovely. Say, we don't totally agree on that. But, uh, but anyway, so I'm, I'm uh, rabbiting on a bit. But, it's, but it's, it's the just being able to get in and do things. Yeah. Is, and and you've also been going. able to create good relationships. Yeah, that's, that's very important. Well, I think it's hugely. I think it's hugely Skill. important. I, th I think I really do believe that most people get up in the morning intent on doing good things, and uh, I think that it is much better to be naive than it is to be cynical. Mm. Uh, I, I think um, that if you earnestly try to do the right thing. 55 years in this business, I still believe essentially in natural justice. If you do the right thing, then the right things happen to you. Mm. 
and uh, and that's not as common a view as it ought to be. Thank goodness, because having that view means that you do try things, you do give people the credit for coming from the right point of view, therefore you do more things, therefore you get more opportunities, and you get out of a virtuous circle, rather than a sort of rather inward-looking, vicious yeah. one. Yeah. And has, pen has working in pensions changed at all? Yeah, I think, I think I, I'd, I'd say there's more similarities than there are differences, but clearly there are, there are big changes. One of the things that worries me most about the change is that uh, there's a lot less of it about. The fact that uh, savings levels, if you look at the overall savings ratio, it's, mm -hmm. it's a fraction of what mm -hmm. it was if you, if you go back. Mm -hmm. And that combined with the fact that uh, an awful lot of people out there don't realise that they are uh, not saving adequately for the kind of retirement that the likes of me have been able to live for worries me. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've I've got enormous sympathy, for example, for the WASPy women. Yeah. I've, I, I've I've I think it they the government had no option but to make the changes, but the fact they didn't communicate them, and some of those stories from the women who gave up their jobs before, when you could still have mandatory retirement ages, yeah, yeah. Who, could give up, who gave up their jobs expecting their pension to start in a couple of months, mm. and in fact it was going to start in five years, are shocking. Mm. And I think that um, the, uh, the, the, one of the problems, one of the changes that's led to that is the really reduction to a very, very low and inadequate level of the advice bit of the pensions industry. Right. When, when I was um, more active earlier on, the independent financial advisor sector, with all the vicissitudes and the, and the scandals and so forth that have been attributed to it, um, uh, which I think are a fraction of, of what good it did, um, was much more active. When did you last see a pensions ad? Mm. Um, you know, they're just they're, nobody is promoting the business anymore, and that's the big change. Is that there was a big push to try and get people to save at adequate levels, yeah. uh, and and really that push is pretty well absent now. Otherwise, why would we have automatic enrolment? So I think the nature of the industry has changed. There's much more focus on the technical stuff and on the investment side, all very important. But, mm -hmm. but essentially, if you're not putting enough money in wait for it, you ain't going to get the money out. Yeah. And the focus of the industry has moved away from that, from getting people to uh, put in sufficient money for their retirement to understand where they stand, towards managing what's already there. Mm -hmm. and, and, well, if people understood that and could make adjustments, that's fair enough. But by and large, people don't. And, and you've mentioned auto-enrolment. I mean, yeah. the government has shown some interest in changing that, yeah. but do you think it's doing enough? Well. I did a lot of work with the Pensions Commission back in the early early 2000s. Um, in fact, the only insurance company's numbers that are cited in the Pensions Commission report those for Aegon, and they are my numbers. And what they did was they looked at, so I did some work study analysis when I was younger, um, they looked at what the costs were, not the charges, the costs were of getting lower paid employees or SMEs in a voluntary context to go into pensions and save. Mm -hmm. And basically what they showed was that uh, you, you would have to have an annual management charge for about 1.5% to cover the costs. Mm -hmm. And I don't altogether agree with that sharp intake of breath, but that's a different topic for another <laughs> day. Um, uh, and that was deemed to, 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 to be uh, to, to, to be too high. Um, so when the but when Adair Turner and the team uh, were uh, were working on it, um, they had to find the balance between getting something in and what the employers would would stand. And uh, and they looked at the uh, state pension mm -hmm. and and the the a lot of the discussion about. Uh, automatic enrolment levels now 
uh, is looks at just the automatic enrolment contributions without taking into account the basic state pension. Mm. And analogies with Australia are made. Well, without mentioning the fact that in Australia the basic state pension is means tested, so you can't make those comparisons. I remember saying to Adair Turner, these amounts aren't looking high enough to me. And he said, well, we've got to get it in. And, and he said, in any event, he said, the question for me, the question is whether once you've got people to the point where they are no longer dependent on the state, whose business is it to tell them how much of their money they ought to take now as opposed to how much they ought to defer it? Right. And I think that's, that's a pretty good argument. Yeah. And I still think that, uh, um, that if you add the output from automatic enrolment to the basic state pension, the changes which he inspired having gone through, um, the number of people who will uh, be reliant on state benefits, because if we go back to when it was, a, you know, the number of people on the maximum income guarantee was mm. huge, mm -hmm. is, is now much lower. Right. So I'm not sure. I, I think the threshold's too, too, too high. Mm -hmm. I, I think people ought to be able to get in earlier. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but, but, but I'm, not, I'm not totally convinced that compelling people to take their money one way rather than another is, is something good. So, so what do you think is most needed to make DC work better? Oh, communications. 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 You've, we've simply got to get to the point where people understand what they're in for. Mm. Because when people understand what they're in for, then either A, if they decide they want to do something different about it, they can do it, or, 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 or B, if they know, if, if those waspy women had known mm. that they were facing five years' delay, they wouldn't have done things like give up their jobs. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't mind, I, so I wouldn't force people to, um, to save more than is necessary to keep them from being a burden on the taxpayer, but if they're not saving enough for the kind of retirement that they expect, I'd like them to know that's where they are, so that when they get there, they're not surprised. They've got, there are other ways of, of, of managing, you know, you can carry on working like I am. You can uh, use the equity in your house. I set up the equity release council, if you mm -hmm. go back, uh, we go back a few years now, which is, which is burgeoning. Um, but but it, it's the fact that people simply don't understand where they are. Mm. So it's communication and engagement are the most important things you can do in DC. Mm. And I agree, and, and a lot of people have been saying that for mm. some time, but how come it's not happened? Because Solar is very straightforward. Nobody is spending any money on it. Um, it is a very expensive thing to get people to change their habits and uh, and that isn't appreciated th uh, by the majority of people. I was at a conference fairly recently where the closing, uh, um, the chair said, well, everybody's agreed, and it was a conference with a massive load of very high-level people from the industry, which I just sneak into. And, uh, and he said, so everybody's agreed, engagement is really important. What I would really have liked him to have done at the end is said, and I'd like to have a show of hands of all those people in this room who think it's their responsibility. And I reckon Hector Sands was there, he would have put his hand up. Some of the people from the regulators would have put their hands up. One or two people from the charities, like uh, uh, people at Time Hall, would have put their hands up. And I reckon that the financial services industry, by and large, would have looked at each other. I've, you know, I, I just, and, and mm -hmm. I, I can understand, I, I can't understand that from the pensions and insurance side of things because more engaged customers equals more business. Yeah. I struggle it, I, I struggle to see how, I'm not a banker and, and I, I really don't understand their business, but it feels to me intuitively like if I was a bank, would I really want more engaged customers? I'm not so sure. <laughs> As an insurer or a pensions person, absolutely you do, right. because if people realise their needs, then they're going to buy more of your product. But getting, get, getting them to put their hand in their pocket to actually do anything about it is close to impossible. Mm. And, and I hope that, that 
with the new launch of the MAPS strategy, uh, we will see that the, that long-standing view is, is proved totally erroneous and, he gets, and Hector and his colleagues, who I wish them all the very best in the world, um, get the backing that they deserve because they're doing a great job. One of the wonderful things I saw this week was that the number of, um, uh, of people who've been contacting pension-wise is up 50% on last year. Oh, right, okay. That's fantastic mm. achievement, fantastic mm -hmm. achievement. I would never have thought, being honest, that they could have done it, mm -hmm. but, 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 they, but they have. And that is one of the, you know, if you ask me where the engagement successes were over the last 10 years, I would really struggle to find one, but that feels like one to me. Mm -hmm. And you've obviously come through the insurance sector and you've worked on the contract-based side as well yeah. as the trust-based side. Sure. Um, do you think one is more distant to the member than the other, and yeah. or in what way do they differ from each other? Well, I've, I've worked on DB and DC. I've chaired a couple of DB schemes, as well, but not, not for a while because it all got too difficult. Um, the... Ideally, an engaged employer who believes in the things that engaged employers say they believe in and um, is, is a wonderful thing to have because it goes to things like uh, how much they put in, how much they encourage their people to join the scheme, how much they encourage the the employees to take up higher levels of contribution. Mm -hmm. So. In an ideal world, I think the trust-based model is, is, is fine, but it's very difficult for SMEs to work mm. in, in, in that world. I've, you know, my, my father used to run a corner shop. I mean, when, when I go to conferences and I listen to people say, well, employers ought to do this and employers ought to do that, and, and I look at the way in which the proportion of people that are employed by SMEs is climbing and climbing and climbing. Uh, and, and I, I think to uh, uh, I hear things said like, well, employers should be taking responsibility for their employees' financial well-being. Mm. Well, my, if he'd have said that to my dad, he would have said, I look after my, uh, we had one shop assistant, I look after Peggy's uh, financial well-being every Friday when I give her a pay. <laughs> and, and I've got, again, I did a lot of my early work with SMEs. And, uh, and their main thing they've got to do is get on and run their business. Yeah. So I think you need a system which works well for SMEs. Yeah. In, in my world, that would be one where there was more advice, more, uh, I'm bold enough to say it, more persuasion um, employed, getting more people to do things above minimum levels. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think it's difficult to do that outside of the contract-based world. Mm. I think it'll be interesting. Obviously, I'm an advocate of master trusts, otherwise I wouldn't have done Nest, otherwise I wouldn't be working with Now, but I can't see how they, at the moment, are positioned to go beyond the minima to any significant extent. Mm. And whilst I don't think people ought to be forced to do more, necessarily, I think that people ought to understand what they're doing if they're not, and that requires time and effort, and that costs money, which is why I think um, mm. the obsession with charges is, I think, pretty much counterproductive. Mm. Certainly now, now we're down at, uh, uh, you know, typically 0.75, anything below 1%. When you think of, you know, what matters to people in terms of their retirement is, has the money that they put aside kept its value in real terms or preferably kept its value up in terms of standards of living. Yeah. Now, if even a relatively modest ambition like CPI plus three mm -hmm. is giving you your money back and a genuine real return, so you're keeping up with the standard of living, mm. then, um, then does an extra 25 basis points on the charges matter? Not a lot in terms of the lifestyle that you can live but in terms of the effort that you could put into communicating with people and getting them to understand where they stand, it would make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. You very rarely get uh, any discussion about what is being paid for out of the charges. The analogy is normally drawn just with straightforward investment costs, yeah. maybe some admin, 
but having a discussion about, well, is 75 basis points too much? Is 50 basis points too much? It's rather like having a discussion about whether a shopping bag which costs 10 pounds is better or worse value than one that costs 20 pounds without discussing what's in the shopping bag. Yeah. And what isn't in the shopping bag, by and large, in the discussions about charges, is the cost of communication. And by, and by communication, I don't mean sending stuff out, I mean uh, what the people at the other end have understood and acted on. Yeah. The test of communication isn't whether or not an expert looking at your letter says, yeah, that's plain English and yeah, that's really clear. It's whether the person who's received the thing has read it, understood it, and acted on it. And how many pieces of research have you seen where the test of a whether a piece of uh, communication is good or not mm. is what the effect has been on the behaviour of the members? Yeah. Well, uh, not a lot, Sandra. <laughs> yeah. Can you think of one? Well, uh, I think login login percentages are about ten or so, ten percent. Well, well, if ten percent is with, that's ten percent is a lot better than we managed at uh, at Trinity Mirror, mm. and when you think about the background of that organisation vis-à-vis pensions mm. and yes. the nature of the people that work there, at least at the you know, journalistic levels, uh, and we believe me, we really tried. We really, really <laughs> tried. We, we, we had, uh, um, well, probably still have Richard Butcher's taken over from me now, and, and I'm delighted with that. Um, but we had things like pop-ups come up on people's entry screens when they logged on and yeah. to their main working screen and oh, right. everything else. The company did everything they could to support us. Sadly, pensions, I learned from uh, the very first pension journalist I spoke to, when I asked him why he didn't ever write good stories about pensions, he said, uh, well, there are two reasons. He said, one is I write stories about good things, and my, the first one I wrote, my empire, my editor spiked it. Uh, and when it didn't appear, I went to see him and I said, well, why have, you, why, why have you spiked my piece about pensions? He said, pensions is a mego subject, he said. And uh, he said, what do you mean a mego subject? I read them and my eyes glaze over. Uh, and, and, and then, uh, this is a, a, a daily journalist, and, and then I said, well, why didn't you write the good stuff, though? And he said, well, when did you last read a story that uh, said jet land safely at Heathrow? And unfortunately, that's that's life. Mm, mm-hmm. But but it's it's not good. Mm. I think I might have lost the track. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, what I was going to ask as well is, uh, you you mentioned there should be more advice at some point. Yeah. Do you think the the boundary between guidance and advice ought to be softened? Somehow? Yes. Yeah, I do enjoy. It. In fact, I th- I think that I abs- you know eight and a half years on the pensions regulator board, I do understand the pressures that there are on regulators and the way in which uh, a program is heaped on them if they get anything wrong. But I fear we're now very firmly in the situation where the best is the enemy of the good. Mm. And, uh, and so I think, it, I think it, ought to, it ought to be softened. I, having said that, I've been involved over the, God, at least over the last 20 years with efforts to try and come up with some form of easing of that boundary, and uh, what, 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 and haven't found it. So mm-hmm. I, I don't absolutely don't claim to know how to do it, mm-hmm. but I all power to the elbows of those people who are still still trying to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it shouldn't be uh, really be a problem to give the kind of advice that a reasonably informed uncle would give to uh, somebody just setting out yeah. a, a, a work. Um, and, but, but how you arrive at that situation in a consumerist, um, necessarily consumerist world, I just I simply don't know. Mm. Too difficult. Yeah. Um, what, what, what you also mentioned earlier is the um, Trinity Mirror Scheme, which you have chaired on the DC side. Um, Obviously Trinity Mirror is linked to the Maxwell scandal, to Maxwell's media empire, and that was the biggest scandal 
potentially in pensions. Yeah. Um, we've had BHS since then, we've yeah. had others. Do you think anything as what happened in DB could happen in DC? I think it's more difficult for it to happen in, in DC. One of the reasons why is because the individual members actually see their own pots. So although the number of engagement is low, there are more eyes on it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think obviously, well, OPRA, the first pensions regulator, was set up as a direct response to Maxwell yeah. and uh, problems of uh, absconding with the funds are really very few and far between. Having said that, there's a massive amount of money going into DC right now, and massive amounts of money tend to attract uh, people with less than pure motives. Mm. So I don't think you can rule out a problem. I suspect it would be different in different in nature mm -hmm. to those that those that arose with uh, Maxwell and, and with. Uh, um, uh, and BHS. Do you see any any mis-selling issues anywhere? Or? Well, the, the one the thing that I'm most worried about in terms of what I would call mis-selling is excessive de-risking. Mm -hmm. I, I think that um, that I worry about people being put into investment media too early that don't take the kind of risk-reward uh, profiles that people can afford to take. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm a child, I guess, of the equity age. I was taught, I can remember vividly, I was 19, when I met my very first ever actuary. And this was 1967, and inflation was starting to take off. Mm -hmm. And I was doing pensions calculations now, and we were given a set of uh, rate tables to work off that were based on 7% interest rather than 4% interest, right. which is what we worked on. Uh -huh. I mean, these days these numbers seem ridiculous, yeah. but by comparison with the inflationary in the 80s and 90s, they were quite modest. Mm. But he, came, he was obviously sent around to check that we were doing the sums right. And, uh, uh, and he sat by me and watched me do my sums. And, and, and afterwards, he said, well, what do you think of these new rates? And I said, oh, the pensions are much better with these new rates. And he, he gave this big sigh. And he said, oh, uh, he said, pensions aren't about money, lad. They're about meat and potatoes. It's not what the pounds you've got are. It's what they buy that counts. And then he went on to say, that uh, therefore the important thing with your pensions investments is if you want to spend your money on real things, it's best off invested in real things. Mm -hmm. And I can't fault that as, as a basic piece of logic. So I'm a subscriber to equities being the sense, equity type investments, not just equity, mm -hmm. being a sensible place for most of your money, most of the time, while you can afford to take the risk. And I think that especially when you look at the average person now and look at the average DC contribution, um, you, you, you see people writing stuff like, well, if the average DC pot is only 25,000 quid, you've got to protect it against excessive downsides. Well, if that was the only thing they had, that would make sense. But everybody, 99% of people, has got a basic state pension worth a quarter of a million quid. Mm -hmm. If all you've got on top of that is £20,000 and the downside risk at the extreme is, what, 50%, then you shouldn't be acting as if your exposure is to a 50% drop in your whole pensions pot. Mm. Your, your whole pensions provision, let alone houses or anything else you've got, is starts off at 270 and a 50% drop in your 20000 takes you to 260 the thing you want to do, in my simple view, with that 20,000 quid is grow it. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at people who are starting to do stuff like de-risk their, uh, their, their, their pension savings from age 40 or something mm -hmm. stupid, mm -hmm. I think, good grief. Well, if the historical differences between equity investment and other forms of investment play out over the period until they retire, somebody at that point will look back and say, why on earth did you do that then? Yeah. And so the the, the mis-selling challenge 
could come back and, and, and bite people. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Right. No, um, and and what about the decumulation side? Mm. Well, again, I think it's uh, uh, I think it's mainly a question of trying to get understanding up. Uh, I I think I think the pathways are a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, I think. Um, Fortunately for me, because I haven't had to get my brain around them, Zurich, uh, having sold off their active book to Scottish Widows, mm -hmm. we aren't doing non-advised drawdown, <laughs> so I haven't had to get my head around uh, pathways properly. Um, and at the moment, the situation with master trusts is, is different. The, I can't help but think the same thing will pop up. In, in, in that area. But I think they are they are a good thing because one of the things we saw early at Mirror and we were able to jump on straight away because the pensions department is brilliant was the propensity of, of people, not many people, but those few people who did try to get their cash out early to do things like take their cash out of a sensibly invested pensions pot and put it with tax relief and then employers contributions and everything else, and put it into a bank account yeah. <laughs> for, for reasons which you totally understand on a human level, like, well, it didn't feel like my money when it was in the pension fund. Mm. Now I've taken it out and I've put it into a bank account, it feels like my money. It's, right. it's my money without tax relief, it's, 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 it's my money without investment roll-up, mm. but it feels like my money. And you can see people, see people doing that. And the main aim, of course, of the pathways was because of fears about people putting too much in the cash in an inappropriate way. And I, I, I don't quite know how it's all going to pan out. And there are clearly risks in terms of, from provider and advisor perspective, if it turns out the pathway turns out to be the wrong one and people say, I didn't really understand. Mm. But you know, I, I think that's that's the most important development for me. Yeah. yeah, and and you said you know quite often people can come back later and say I didn't understand yeah. or yeah. you didn't communicate that. Where does the individual responsibility start? Well, you you just can't use caveat emptor <laughs> in this marketplace because people simply aren't equipped uh, or engaged enough for, for, for it to be fair. I think a huge amount of responsibility actually rests on the shoulders of the people who've got their money. I think that the institutions, by and large, because they have pretty much got their money through the intermediate um, actions of uh, an IFA or a pensions consultant or an employer, Mm -hmm. um, sort of stand aloof from uh, it's, it's uh, I'm looking after the money that I have got for that member yeah. uh, I think that the uh, institutions of whatever kind ought to be prepared to take more of the responsibility for whether or not the member understands where they stand and uh, once the member understands where they stand at that point I think it's reasonable for them to take responsibility mm. but all the while they don't, then I think uh, it should be reasonable on the people who are making lots of money out of those people to do more than they currently do uh, to, to get them in a position where they can be expected to take responsibility. Mm -hmm. And um, it, obviously there is still so much uh, to do in terms of policy and in the industry in the DC yeah. space in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think there have been calls for another pensions commission. You've been involved in one. Do you think it would be a good idea to have another one? I, I, I blow a little bit of hot and cold on it, but, but as of today, I'm hot. <laughs> uh, because I think the quality of the work that Dare, Jeannie and uh, John Hills did was, was fantastic. And having been lucky enough to get involved with quite a number of uh, generations of people at DWP and so on, I know how hard those people work but it, it's tough, especially when you've got all the political pressure. I, I think the great thing that the Pensions Commission did was, first, it did a really profound analysis of what the situation really was. 
and then it got everybody to agree on what the analysis of the situation was without immediately going and saying, therefore, do this and this and this. And when it did come onto their proposals, the discussion was just about whether or not these were the right things to do. Mm-hmm. They weren't the usual muddle of, well, I disagree, partly because your analysis is wrong and partly because your policy conclusions are wrong. Mm-hmm. The merit of having something like the uh, Pensions Commission is that if, if they got to the point where everybody accepted their analysis was right, then it would make it easier to arrive at policy conclusions uh, that everybody agreed were soundly based, even if they didn't necessarily agree with them. And I think that's the big merit in having a, uh, a, a pensions commission. I don't think you can ever actually take pension decisions uh, away from ultimately being the government's, but you can make absolutely sure that they are properly informed. Mm-hmm. I've been a governor of the, and uh, on the council of the PPI until last June, and I think the PPI do a great job in terms of providing a steady flow of uh, really good information. But if it was uh, had a statutory basis, plus perhaps one or two, then I think it'd be even better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, obviously, we've talked about some of the aspects of your career. I'm sure the many more and <laughs> many more anecdotes. Is there one that you would say was the highlight? Of my career? Um, there have been a lot. Taking the first pound in on Nest was magical because going back to the early 2000s when people that were, Helene Dean was then number three in the private pensions department of DWP. Mm-hmm and we were working on a project called Informed Choice and we tried to launch a pensions dashboard back in uh, 2004 Um, and it all looked impossible. It looked like we were stuck. Uh, Employers were retreating from making pensions provision. The pressures on the state to do a pay-as-you-go system looked unmanageable and it, it just felt that we were between a rock and a hard place. And, uh, uh, and to see the automatic enrolment idea come up and then actually get executed, it was, 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 well, that, was that was a great moment. Uh, and um, obviously I was only a, very much a bit player in that. That, that, was a, that was a magic moment. For me personally, probably the bit I enjoyed most was during the 1990s when I was the marketing director at NPI we trebled the business, we put the, the uh, squirrel on the TV ads, that was great fun, mm-hmm. it, was, it, 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 it was great fun. Sadly we, we made the mistake, and there's a bit of a moral in here, of being too successful, which if you're a mutual is a real problem because you run out of capital. And um, I would love the mutual model to work, but it's very difficult to uh, make it work because sooner or later uh, all the things you've got to pay for need to be paid for and uh, and it's difficult to find the capital. Mm. And have there been any moments that were more difficult or that you would do differently maybe? I think the most difficult thing for me was uh, I did five years on the Money Advice Service Board and that was agony for me. Um, I think they did some really great work, which I'm delighted to see MAPS building on, mm. but uh, with the, the benefit of hindsight, we didn't work nearly hard enough on getting the industry in particular and uh, the relevant commentators on side. We thought it was so self-evident that what we were doing was in the best interests of people and therefore in the best interests of the industry, that we really, um, well, the amount of effort that was put in to getting people on the side was simply inadequate, and vested interests which were stacked up against it, um, who should have known better, um, were much better at playing the political and media um, uh, angle, and with, with with the result that uh, that it had to be completely reconstituted in the way that it has. And I would have loved to have got that right, and I would have loved to have seen us be, we could have been 
uh, now, sort of five or six years on from where I think maps are now, mm. and, uh, and and I regret that and mm. that loss of time really, but but hope, hopefully second attempt will be will be better. Mm-hmm. And um, talking about your, we have been talking about other people's retirement. What about your own retirement? Are you as diligent in planning it as you would uh, like people to be? I was as lucky. I mentioned that you know I was put into a DB pension plan when I was 17 mm. and uh, and that and um, because by the time I did I was in one job for the first 25 years mm-hmm. and the good thing about being in pensions was when somebody wanted me to go and work for them and I moved I knew what to say and uh, I was able to get my pension rights carry my pension rights across with me um, so to that extent I was I mean the I very nearly shot myself in the foot in a really big way because uh, back in my, my day, of course, when it was all DB and the maximum pension was 40 60th of salary, mm. I thought, and you expect to be one job for life, having started at 17, I thought I was going to be uh, uh, in the pension scheme for 48 years and only get 40 60ths. Mm. So at the age of 23, when I got married, I went to see the personnel director and said, what I'd like to do is I'd like to leave today. I, in those days, you could get a refund of your pension contributions with only 10% tax deducted, uh, when standard rate tax was something like 38% in those days. Right, yeah. We've, you know, people have forgotten days like that. Um, and, uh, and then I'll come back tomorrow and I'll start, and I'll be 23, and I'll have 42 years, so I'll still get my 46th, but I can use my refund of contributions to buy curtains and carpets. And he looks at me, and he gave me the best piece of financial advice anybody's ever had. He said, don't be a bloody idiot, bugger off. <laughs> and, and with that, I got those six 60ths of service, which I managed to carry through until eventually I was able to take them uh, subject to the retirement factor at age 52. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, m- m- again, fortunately, like a lot of other people, in those days, there was no opting out. Yeah, there was yeah. contracts with, you know, term of condition of employment. I think one of the most stupid pieces of legislation ever went through mm. was, was when they prevented uh, employers putting people into a pension scheme as part of their terms and conditions of employment. Mm. Because I would never, I would never join the pension scheme at seventeen. At seventeen, mm. of course I wouldn't. As it is, I sit here today blathering on like this, large mostly because of that. Most, most mm. one had one remunerative redundancy. That's always helpful in a career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was, a, it was almost a form of auto enrolment. It was. It, well, it, it was. You were automatically enrolled. You, you, you went, after one year, you went in the pension scheme. You got five percent pension scheme contributions. And for that, you got in 60ths. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. And um, obviously, you're not retired. <laughs> no. So are, no. You, are you ever thinking of retiring? Or I tried you when I was. Well, well, I, I enjoy too much, Sandra. I, I really do. I, I did try. When I was, when I was 56, I, just, I, I lasted three weeks. And so, <laughs> somebody phoned me up and said, uh, Oh, would you mind thinking about doing this? And I said, Oh, well, I can do that. And, uh, and I decided then that uh, uh, my wife, I, I thought again about it actually Christmas before last uh, because I was chairing the Zurich IGC then and yeah. chairing the Mirror Scheme and chairing, a, uh, I just finished chairing Marine and General Mutual Life Company. I still pinched myself because I started off doing the filing and then he's a bloody gem. It's astonishing how this industry gives people that opportunity in a way I think others don't even now. Um, uh, but I said to my wife, oh, I'm 70, you know, we've had a bit of a windfall because I was the first chair of the funding circle at PSP Lender and uh, had a bit of a windfall when they floated. And um, I said, I'm going to pack up. And she said, you do realise that your work is as much your social life as it is your... And she's right, because, you know, I've got a huge amount of people I know and like. And so I decided that as long as the phone keeps ringing, I'll keep answering it. Mm-hmm. And I'll do that as long as it keeps ringing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and 
you recently joined the Now Pensions Board. Can you tell us anything about what the plans are? Well, sort out the muddle is the big plan. Uh, I, I mean, I know the Cardano people who bought Now Pensions yeah. um, quite quite well because I've been involved with Lincoln, who they acquired a yeah. couple of years before for four or five years now. So I uh, know and I, I think very highly of the Cardano people. I think they've been very candid about the fact that there was a muddle and it needs to get sorted out. And there are all sorts of things. I think the Master Trusts have got a wonderful opportunity, wonderful opportunity, uh, because they've got a direct connection with the members. And if there's a theme going through this, it's all about the members. And, and the insurance company side of things, and to an extent the trust-based side, is blighted by the fact that there isn't a direct connection between the members and the people with the money, the institutions. Mm. The master trusts have that direct connection. Mm. And you could do all sorts of things with it. Brackets, once you've got a sound base to work on. So I look at what Nest are doing with a sidecar, for example. That's exactly the sort of thing you can do. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but, but, but now uh, everybody knows they've had their issues with the admin and the data. Cardano are very dedicated, uh, having worked for six years uh, for Otto in Aegon, I can say this, they're a bit Dutch, <laughs> which means they're very serious, very they're very, very bright people, um, and they will get that sorted out, and that's got to be the priority in the first place. The other side, and I'm absolutely convinced they will, is with the people that I know from Cardano and that side, Joe Seegers and the team she's putting together on the trustee side, if that combination can't sort things out, well, I, I, nobody can. And, uh, and then I think there are huge opportunities, um, I think largely because they've got, uh, what, uh, 1.7 million members? Mm -hmm. that's, that's quite a responsibility, but also a huge opportunity. Mm -hmm. And if you could give one piece of advice to a young person for their career? It would be do stuff, do stuff. It would simple, simple, simple as that. Um, you know, just get out and do things. And uh, it, it really is it's, it's as, simple, as simple as that. If somebody asks you to do something, just say yes, and then just do it. You don't have to shoot the lights out, just do it. And, and then people will ask you to do more stuff, and all and all the doors, all the doors come open. Laurie, mm -hmm. thank you very much, and thank you for listening. For more about pensions, you can go to mallowstreet.com.